Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and I had an excellent and timely conversation this week with the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley. Esau is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. He's a priest in the Anglican Church in North America, where he serves as canon theologian in his diocese. Esau also serves the ACNA as director of the Next Generation Leadership Initiative. He is a contributing writer for the New York Times. He's written for numerous outlets such as Christianity Today, The Witness, and The Washington Post. His most recent book is entitled Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope, and it's available now from IVP. Now, on today's episode, Esau and I tackle some timely topics, including a biblical understanding of protest in light of submission to governing authorities, a biblical case for police reform, and the political witness of the church. Esau explains the tension between an emphasis on social justice versus personal salvation and how scripture clearly shows that tension need not exist. Esau shares the relationship between peacemaking and anger at injustices and challenges us to think biblically when addressing all of life's issues. This is such an important conversation that you'll definitely want to share with others, so please take time to share this episode. And now I invite you to join me in my conversation with Esau McCauley. Esau, it's so good to have you with us here on the Church Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited for our conversation, and, and you've been uh, sharing so much. Um, you know, your voice has, has been, I think, a much-needed voice in the church, and so we're very thankful for um, you just being obedient as God is speaking into your life. And you have a, a new book out entitled Reading While Black. And in that book, you, you write this. You say, black theologians and writers are thrust into the middle of a battle between white progressives and white evangelicals, feeling alienated in different ways from both. Now, Esau, for those um, that might be listening in today that might be, might, may not be as familiar with the black Christian tradition, can you explain um, this quote, this, this feeling of alienation in the midst of this battle between white progressives and white evangelicals? Yeah, I mean, most of the time, if you look at the history of Christianity, at least in America, they kind of tell the story of kind of the birth of issues related to the social gospel around the turn of the century with the Industrial Revolution. And to make a very long story very short and overly simplistic, there's kind of this idea that the social gospel goes in one, one way, which is largely located in mainline traditions. And then there is kind of a continued emphasis on personal salvation, piety, and the transformation of life and the authority of scripture in evangelicalism. So that then when an African-American shows up, who during that same period of time was developing its own theological debates and issues and questions, and our divisions are along different lines. They're not they don't, they're not separating social gospel on one side and personal holiness on the other. There are different issues that divide us. And so then I come into kind of white Christian spaces and people are like, well, which, one, which side are you on? <laughs> and I can agree that the importance of the scriptures is God's word to us for our good. I can agree that we need personal transformation of life and holiness because that's what I was taught in my black church growing up. 
But I was also taught in that same church about what the Bible says about the poor and the disherited people of the earth and the ways in which our faith leads us to care for those and not just to care for them personally, but to look at the things that cause them to remain in poverty. And those kinds of issues weren't seen as controversial in, in my context. But when I say those same things in kind of this, this battle that I'm pulled in different directions from for whoever wants to hear a portion of my message. And so when I started talking about the Bible, I'm really well loved in evangelical spaces. When I started talking about social justice, I am loved in, in mainline spaces and very few want both. Mm. You know, that's um, as I've been reading through your book, Esau, I've, um, I've resonated with a, a lot of what you've shared because I think just in conversations I'm having with, with a lot of people in the church that this, this kind of, um, division or these two kind of traditions that you've spoken about, you know, kind of a, a social gospel and then, you know, something that focuses more on personal salvation. Um, I, I think a lot of people are wrestling with this in, in the same way that you're kind of describing it, like that there isn't kind of an either or, but there's a both and. And so, so I, I really feel like um, a lot of things that you're putting forth are refreshing. But talk to me a little, Esau, about how can we, as we look at you know, kind of these these two pieces together, kind of the social gospel piece, as well as, as you said, you know, um, a call to, to holiness and, you know, personal growth in Christ. Um, how, how can we kind of pull these things together rather than allowing them to, to push us apart and create division? This will be, um, sound overly simplistic, but I might say we should do things like look in our Bibles because I <laughs> Our Bibles don't contain the same fears that we do. Mm. So one of the things that I talk about, I think it's in the book, maybe it's somewhere else, but um, it's in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah says something like, what are you who add house to house and field to field? Because there's no room left for the people in the land. But then, so he's talking about, uh, what to you who get up early in the morning to kind of oppress the poor? So there's a part in Isaiah's gospel where there, Isaiah's letter, Isaiah's book, where there's this strong, um, and you can find it. This is not hard to find. This strong condemnation of the oppression of the poor and the weak. But then he will also say in that same book, what do you get up early in the morning to chase after wine and strong drink? So he says, well, one, this one problem in Israel is that you trust the poor. Another problem in Israel is that you're personally immoral. Hmm. And then the other thing that Isaiah says in that same book, this is not four or five in the same book. He'll say the third problem that Israel has is that they've abandoned the one God of Israel. So Isaiah could talk about idolatry. That's no controversy. That kind of gets received into churches. We need to be faithful to God. Isaiah could talk about personality. We could say, yes, that's important. We need to be personally moral. And then when Isaiah starts talking about injustice, they go, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, that only relates to Israel. Or that only relates to, the, you know. So it's, it's when we try to bring all of Isaiah together. The interesting thing about that is that if you read Isaiah, and you read Jeremiah, and even if you read the, the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 7, God doesn't just judge the nation of Israel for un unjust practices. He also judges pagan nations. And so it seems that even as it relates to nations who are not a part of the covenant people, God says, one of the reasons why I'm going to judge you is the way that you treat the poor and the disinherited people. And so one question, one thing is to say, well, let's be biblical. And I'll be really brief about this. I'll say, let's look at the, let's look at the story of Jesus. He literally begins his sermon, his first public sermon, <laughs> which, which we all know. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to, pre good, to preach good news to the poor. And we know 
that when he quotes that sermon, he's drawing upon Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. Isaiah 58 is the paradigmatic example in the Old Testament of criticizing false religiosity while leaving the poor. He said, like, you get, this is the kind of fast that I choose. So Jesus in his own ministry is evoking a passage in Isaiah that criticizes a false religiosity that doesn't actually care about the, what's happening to the people. Then the question is, how do we actually ever screen this out? The last thing I'll say about this is that Jesus says in the Great Commission, go into the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now, the interesting thing about that is that we, we turned the Great Commission into Jesus saying, go into the world and simply present the gospel to get them converted. But Jesus says, teach them everything that I taught you. Well, then that begins to ask the question, well, what do we actually see Jesus doing and hmm. teaching the disciples? You see Jesus teaching the disciples through his miracles, through his parables, through the sermon I just mentioned, that part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be about the kingdom. And part, about being, part of being about the kingdom includes, yes, personal transformation, but also the concern about injustice. And so all I want to say is this, don't shrink the Great Commission. Hmm. Yes, we want to introduce people to Jesus. Yes, we want people to be transformed and have a personal relationship with God. But that is not all that Jesus taught in his own life and ministry. He taught, he, he literally preached the coming kingdom of God. And so we can't establish the kingdom on the earth, on earth before Jesus comes. But we can, through our witness and our testimony, bear witness to it. And so what I try to say to people is I'm trying to do the best that I can at, to understand the Bible and put it into practice without shrinking out the parts that are uncomfortable. Yeah, that's good. That That's very solid. And Esau, honestly, whenever you kind of walk through that, it, it makes it sound like, yes, that, that just makes perfect sense. I mean, that's what we're doing. If we're trying to follow Jesus, then naturally we're going to be uh, wanting to, to follow him, follow his, his commands, his teachings, and follow the way he lived his life. And those things that he said were valuable and were important. And yet we find still kind of this this tension or this friction when it comes to which which kind of side you're on, right? I think there's a big fear about distraction. Hmm. Yeah, and so we'll get we'll get into something like we'll say, okay, well, the two great commandments are love God and love your neighbor. But the first one is most important: love God. And so you don't want to have love your neighbor too closely included. Or we'll argue about, well, what is the gospel? Does the gospel include our social action, or is the gospel? includes an implication that leads to social action. And so the, the, the focus there is just the idea that if we care about too many things, we'll lose focus on the main thing. And what I want to say, what I say to people is, and I don't, I don't try to download everything into the definition of, of the gospel just to get people to do it. What I try to say is let's just do what the Bible says is true and good and just and trust that God wouldn't put us, tell us to do stuff if we thought it was dangerous for us. So what we could tend to do is say, okay, we know that if we just tell people about Jesus, we can focus on that and we won't get distracted from that. Well, then why does Jesus put all of those other things in the Bible? <laughs> and we're treating God's word, the rest of God's word, as a distraction. We're creating a canon within the canon. And so if God told us to do these things for our good, then that's a part of what it means to be a Christian. And so I don't download it all into the definition of the gospel. I talk about it as a part, important part of our Christian witness. And we're so focused on not being distracted we don't understand how our myopic 
focus on just a few things, it's already hurting the cause of unity in the church. We're thinking that if I begin to care about these things, these negative things might flow from it. But we're not recognizing the tremendous negative consequences that are already flowing from us not caring about it. Part of the division that we see in the church right now is the fact that many black and brown Christians have felt like, well, do you actually love me and care about me? And it's almost like, and that, this may seem like too harsh, but it's almost like the bearing of the talents. Okay, I got these two things, and we want to bring those things back up and say, Jesus, I kept, I kept the two things that you gave me, and I didn't, I didn't lose that. But what I wanted to say is that there's an entire New Testament. Hmm. And we had talk, preach the whole counsel of God. And mm-hmm. if you preach the whole counsel of God, then all of the things that are pressing on our society will have a word for it. Yeah, that's good, Esau. That's really good. Let's let's dig in a little bit more, get a little bit more granular, because I love the fact that you address um, in in your book, Reading While Black, you address things that we're we're wrestling with. I mean, right now, like literally right now, um, it's on, on the news. Every blog post uh, you you see. Um, so let's talk a little bit about policing, because you do talk about you know Paul's understanding of authority, and as we look at what Paul writes about authority and and. Um, how we submit to authority and what does, you know, for us in, in modern day policing, what, what, if we look back into scripture, you know, how does that relate? So can you talk to us a little bit about what we learned from Paul first about submission to authority? What I tried to do is actually, and this is, this is the important point. I think this is a, um, an important theological principle. It's the canonical principle that our understanding of the teachings of scripture arises from the whole of scripture and not just one verse. That doesn't mean that you use kind of the whole of scripture to cancel out things that are difficult, but it puts things in context. And so, yes, we have in Romans 13, the call to submit to authority. But we have also have in the same letter, Romans 9, Paul using the example of Pharaoh, where he says that God raised up Pharaoh for the express purpose of being glorified through his judgment of Pharaoh. So why is Pharaoh judged? Pharaoh is judged because of the injustice of the way that he treats the people of Israel. So you have in the in Romans an example of God bringing about judgment on a nation for injustice. And so it can't be that the response in every case is only submission, because then you have something like calling Moses effectively sinful, or at least Moses doing something that Paul would, would condemn. But you don't just have the example of Moses. You have the example of, once again, the prophets, and even something like the prophecy of Daniel. We know about Daniel that tells the story of kingdoms rising and kingdom falling, kingdom rising and kingdom falling, until the final coming kingdom of God. But what you see there is that God is in control of nations that are risen up and nations that are torn down. And so we do know, we do know, if we are Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is in the process of raising up nations and judging nations for their sinfulness. So what then do you make of Romans 13 in light of these wider biblical principles that we know that God's involved in human affairs, raising up nations and tearing them down? I think that what Romans 13 is ultimately getting at is that we can't always know the role that we're playing in God's drama. So it's a very dangerous thing to claim Christian justification for things like violent revolution. And so so in that case, the Christian is not a revolutionary in the sense of claiming that God is at work through us and we can discern it in a minute. We might be able to, in retrospect to say, we can see God's hand at work in a particular action, but it's hard to claim that divine mandate in the moment. So what does that mean? I think that means that submission means trusting that God's gonna bring about his purposes in his own due time. It does not rule out things like Christian resistance because you see things like the Hebrew midwives and you see the example of Daniel who resisted the express orders of the state 
nonviolently. So I think there's a biblical and theological case for the difference between submission and acquiescence. And we tend to have this idea that submission means we must just do whatever the government says without question, especially in the context of what we have now in America, at least it's the democratic republic. In, in the Roman Empire, if, if Caesar said something, there was nothing that Paul could do. He could submit. We live in a democracy. If there's something that the government is doing that we think is not for the flourishing of, of the people more broadly, we have the opportunity and the responsibility as an act of neighborly love to create policies in a democratic republic that allows for the flourishing of the people. And so what I want to say is that submission and acquiescence are not the same thing. And in the democratic republic, we, we have more options available than well, the government said it, therefore I must do it. I mean, we have, like we literally have in America, constitutionally pr- protected free speech and the right of protest. Right, and, and as, as uh, here, here in America, I mean, part of the process is that we are to um, speak up. You know, that, that's, that's yes. what makes it what it is. You know, it's, it's the people have the opportunity to speak yeah. into what's taking place in our government. Um, and so then it, it just makes logical sense that, hey, there, there's this opportunity here. Therefore, if there's injustice we see, then we as people who are following Christ, who are against injustice, should therefore take the responsibility to speak up and use our voices, right? The very nature of a democracy, um, a democratic republic, at least in America in the present moment, is the ability to contend for your beliefs in the public square. Mm-hmm. Now, you can't, as the Christian, say, well, because the Bible says A, B, and C, I can enforce this in an effectively a secular nation. But what we can say is there are values that I hold as a Christian that I think are compelling public goods that I can try to persuade people of as a part of the democratic process. And we've done that in certain issues. We've avoided it in others. And what I wanted to say is let's expand the nature, the range of things that Christians can consider important. That doesn't mean that I land in the book on a particular set of policies because I'm not a policymaker. I'm a, an exegete. But part of what you can do as a pastor, and you see this in the prophets, the prophets will say, this is not of God. Therefore, you need to kind of reform it. And so what you can see then in um, as a part of what a pastor can do is to say, you know, we have a fundamental issue with this particular thing that's happening in our country right now. And we're going to, we're going to say to the state, to the Congress, give us a set of laws that you think will do a good job and we'll be able to analyze it. The the Christian, I don't think the Christian pastor is in most cases equipped to articulate detailed policy changes, but we, but we're not unintelligent. We, We know injustice when we see it and we can speak against it and ask the state to do its duty and do it well. Yeah, why, Esau, do you think it is that there are some some issues that uh, the church kind of rallies around quite easily, and, you know, uh, and rightly so. I mean, important issues, obviously. Um, but then there are other issues that, that's kind of like, oh, no, we, you know, maybe we, we should back off or maybe we shouldn't step into this. Why do you think uh, we, we struggle with that as the church? I think that um, we, I think that we live in a very politically polarized context. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we tend to sometimes adopt the pet issues of particular parties. And so we, it's hard for us to get out of the American binary and not see things through that lens instead of seeing it through the kingdom lens and allowing the actual theological teachings in the, in the scriptural teachings of Christianity to inform our public witness. I really think the problem is that we're not biblical enough. Hmm. Um, and I think that what we need to do is read the Bible more carefully 
and try to do the best that we can to kind of take off the way to kind of rid ourselves in the ways of the ways in which our um, political agendas can influence our readings of scripture. Because I just don't think, I don't think there is um, any doubt that there, these, some of the things around injustice are articulated in the scriptures and not just as they relate to Israel. One of my favorite stories that I, I tell people, here's a fact hiding in plain sight. The story of Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar is about to go and eat grass for a couple of years because he's in trouble. <laughs> and and we all talk about how Daniel has this long prophecy talking about um, Nebuchadnezzar's arrogance. And part of his thing is that he's going to be humble to eat straw and, and eat grass in the fields. But then at the end of that, in the end of that, Daniel chapter four, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, "Therefore cease your injustice. Look mm-hmm. at it." Cease mm-hmm. it. Stop mistreating the poor and maybe God will have mercy upon you. So what is the problem with Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar is arrogant and he is mistreating the weak in his in his kingdom. And for that reason, God is going to judge him. Now, there's a, now, he's a pagan. He's not he's not in the covenant. So that seems to me to say that God seems to hold all governments, not just the Jewish ones, not just the Christian ones. All governments responsible for how they treat the weakest amongst them, which means that it's not a very large conceptual leap to say that in a democratic republic, as a Christian, I can care about injustice. But somehow that has been seen as a particularly politically fraught idea. And I've literally I've put the passages in the thing. Right. Go and look at Isaiah. Go and look at Jeremiah. Go and look at Amos. Go and look at Daniel and go and look at Jesus's own words and see if I'm wrong. And if I'm not wrong, if the Bible actually says it as a corporate good that we can be engaged in, that we should care about as Christians, then there's no reason not to do it other than we're being discipled by something other than the scriptures. Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's 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 really good, Esau. Uh, one of the things that you you write, and as you're talking, I'm thinking through this. You said that many Black Christians have never had the luxury of separating our faith from political action. So, can you unpack that that for us a little bit? Yes, we think of slavery as a moral evil, and we debate it as a moral evil, but slavery was an established law of the land. And so when the Christians oppose slavery, they're opposing an actual law. So what happens when the black Christian encounters, the black person encounters the Bible, he or she is converted, and then they begin to make sense of something. Does God want what happened to, what's happening to me to continue? And they say, no, God, the, the Christian concludes, no, God wills my freedom. Well, that immediately puts them at political crosshairs with the vast majority of the church in America and America more broadly. So the black church is, is born in the context where we could not say, let's only focus on these spiritual things and not the reality of being enslaved. The exact same thing happens to segregation. We treat segregation as like this moral evil, but it was established by law. And so because it was established by law, part of the Christian witness involved continued for these things in the public square. The inability to move into certain neighborhoods was established by law. The, the refusal to give loans to small black business were established by law. The segregation in education was established by law. And so the Brown Racial Board of Education, the Brown Racial Board of Education at Topeka, Kansas, the Brown was a past the daughter of a pastor of a historically black church who, whose daughter was a part of the case that took down segregation. So 
to say to a black Christian, we need to just focus on Jesus and not focus on this political stuff has the rhetorical effect to say historically, that's the same as saying, well, let's not worry about slavery because you'll be free one day. Let's allow segregation to continue because you'll end it one day. We've never had the ability to, to not ask this question. How does the things that I believe about what God says I am and what people are impact the way in which I live and move and function in this country? Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. So, so talk to me a little bit uh, in this. I'd like to continue this. In what ways um, have white people been able to separate faith from political action? I think that, like, I always talk about there's this is complicated. I mean, there mm-hmm. were some white Christians who were involved in the civil rights movement. Um, there are Christians right now who care about what's happening. So, I don't want to say that like all white people, you know, have a certain approach of view of the world. But what I would say is that we can, I think that there's ways of opting in and opting out of the conversation. There's kind of a certain fatigue. Well, I'm tired of talking about this. So I can always retreat back to being unconcerned. And so you have the liberty, people have the liberty of opting in and opting out of this conversation. And so some people, because it's a hard conversation to have, they, they can do a little bit and then they opt out. The difference is, as a black person, I can never opt out of being black in America. Hmm. I can never say I'm tired of dealing with this and like turn off racism. And so part of what it, part of what it means. And so it's much easier to sometimes step away from it than deal with the hard work of bringing about lasting change. And so that's what I, that's what I would say as far as um, the ways in which it's, it's just easy. And I tell people racism is the only sin that we think we can eliminate completely in the sense of like people ask when is this going to be over? In every church, you can say that from the moment I become the pastor until I retire, I'm going to have to preach about marital faithfulness. I'm going to have to encourage people to to parent their children well. I can't preach one sermon on parenting and say, okay, we have parenting down. I can't teach one sermon on fidelity and loving your spouse as well and say we have that down because we know there's the constant temptation to revert back to old bad habits. Well, if, if, if things like lust and greed and materialism are sins that recur, then why wouldn't racism be a sin that recurred that requires the entirety of our energy? And to say, I need to be vigilant on materialism. I need to be vigilant about racial bias. I need to be vigilant about parenting and loving my spouse well. But we, te- we treat racism as this category that we can say, I dealt with it. And not only that, and this is the weird thing, we have an evolutionary definition of how to end racism. We kind of say, well, racism was a thing in the past. And we've kind of evolved as a society before we don't do that as if a child is born with the kind of unbiased, the the equality from the previous generation downloaded into their system. Imagine saying we used to have a problem with lust in the previous generation, but we had a, you know, a lust rights movement and now, or anti-lust movement, and then we ended lust. And now each kid is born with the kind of progress from the previous generation downloaded into their system. No, each generation that is born is born broken. It's born with what we call a fallen nature. And and there's there's always a temptation just slide backwards. And this idea that all we ever do is move forward is only really articulated as it relates to race. And so what I want to say is that like racism is the kind of thing it, that we would have to battle as a result of the fall until we come back. That does not mean that we don't battle it, right? We don't say, well, because lust will never go away. Stop talking about it. We say, no, we will continually disciple our people in that direction. And so part of what it means to be a pastor is to say, to be a pastor in general is to say like, the problems facing us living in a fallen world are massive and I can never defeat them. But in my life, in my ministry, each day, each week, each sermon, I bear witness to what is possible with God as our help. And battling against racism 
is a similar kind of thing. But because of the history of the country, this is emotionally fraught and passionate. They want to solve it and go on to the next thing. And what I want to say is you can't do that because that's not how human nature works. And the ability to check out of that conversation is itself a privilege that some people may not have. Yeah, no, that's 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 very well said, Esau. And as you're talking, I was thinking about you know there's there's been more conversation um, uh, over this this past year around you know the difference between someone saying I'm not racist and someone saying I'm anti-racist or I'm anti-racism, right? Like there there's a difference there when you begin to say you know one is kind of you know just saying hey I'm personally not not you know racist. The other is saying. I'm going to, I stand up against all things that are racist, right? So can you talk to us a little bit about kind of that, that nuance and that shift that, that we're beginning to, to see and hear, you know, being, being vocalized and how that um, applies to us as Christ followers? Well, I use a couple, it's always good to have an analogy, I think, to at least help people make sense of things. Now, I know this may, hopefully this isn't the case. Let's just say, for example, someone was being unfaithful to their spouse. And then they said, you know what, from this point forward, I'm going to stop being unfaithful. I'm just going to start being faithful to my spouse. Well, it's not that simple, right? There's damage that's been done to the relationship through your years of fidelity. And there's maybe if the spouse knew about it, you need to confess. Like the confession part of it starts there. And then you have to begin to act actively say to yourself, well, what kind of habits did I develop during my years of infidelity that I need to, to get to do away with so I don't fall into those patterns again? How can I be actively diligent in the way that I love my spouse? Another question that you might ask yourself, if you come from a, of a family that has historically dysfunctional relationships, and you say, well, what are the ways in which I've implicitly accepted some of these things that are norms that I have to reject as I move into new relationships? We understand that instinctively so here's the question if there are and we talked about this the, the, we're a generation away from segregation right maybe too well what are the habits that we might have unconsciously received from our otherwise loving grandparents and parents that might in that might impact the way that we live and move today how can we say i need to be intentional about the ways in which I move society forward. And I need to also be honest, completely honest, as the beginning of the next stage in the relationships about the ways in which we failed. And so it's not simply enough to ask the question, well, what am I current what what am I actively doing that is racist? It is and, and this is kind of can become it can become legalistic, but the I but the general idea is that I need to be not just diligent in not being racist, but being actively loving. So I'm not necessarily concerned with people using the language of anti-racism. I'm talking about the ways in which we can actively love our neighbors in real and tangible ways and examine the ways in which we have failed and examine the ways in which potentially broken systems and patterns persist in our lives without us knowing it. And anybody who's been a part of a family that has its own troubling dynamics, we can continually over the years begin to discern the ways in which that continues to affect us. And so to believe that you can have a country that has, you know, public unrelenting racism up through the 1960s, 70s, maybe even to the early 80s, and not have any lasting consequences seems to me to be unrealistic. So that means there has to be some examination of the, of how, of the ways in which we can um, actively rid ourselves of these sins. And th there's another thing you can say. You can have people say, we've learned this in other areas. Well, I wasn't physically cheating on my wife. Well, we now understand this is something called, an emo I'm, I'm, a husband, I'm a male, so this is like my wife. Right. You can talk about emotional affairs. We can talk about poor boundaries. We could talk about the ways in which we're not just saying, I'm not sleeping with someone, 
but I'm actively encouraging faithfulness with my spouse and I'm guarding myself from all the ways to which it can be damaged. And so what I want to say is that we have a very, very low bar in the sense that if I'm not actively like contributing to the clan and using racially charged language, then I'm fine. Hmm. And that's not the bar that we put for any other potential social ill. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's good. So Esau, what, what do you say the argument that it's, um, cause some people argue this, that's not biblical for one generation to repent of, or to pay reparations for the sins of a previous generation, right? For example, you know, those calling for reparations and repentance for slavery, um, Jim Crow era laws, do we, you know, when we go to scripture, um, what, what, what do we see there? The book of Daniel, no, the, the book of Nehemiah. There's actually tons. I mean, that's, it's just, it's, it's a strange idea that may mean the book of Nehemiah, when they renew the covenant, Nehemiah issues and recounts the whole history of Israel leading up to Israel's exile. Mm-hmm. And then the people of Israel say, here we are as, you know, slaves to this day because of these things that happened in our past. So, I mean, I am less concerned. With, so like the idea that there is no corporate consequences or, or there's not a corporate responsibility that we don't confess um, the ways in which we as a church have failed. I mean, part of what I understand. So here's the thing. I look at something like the Crusades and I can say, hey, I didn't participate in the Crusade. I didn't kill. I didn't go and like, you know, destroy Jerusalem and, and do these things. But I can recognize the tremendous damage to the cause of Christ that was done by the Crusades. Right. And I can recognize how the gospel is. It's harder to preach as a Christian in light of people asking me the question, well, what about the Crusades? And for me mm-hmm. to say, hey, I didn't do a crusade. Therefore, you should become a Christian anyway. It's like, no. What I actually have to do is to say, you know what? As I look back on that moment, the Christian church failed. And in so much as I, I'm, I was, I'm baptized into the body of Christ, I have to give an account for that. There's another story that I like to say is that when I was, I'm an Anglican. And so we wear like the collars. Mm-hmm. It makes us indistinguishable sometimes from Catholics. And I was in Boston around the time when the Catholic sexual abuse scandal started happening. And we would walk around the city and sometimes we would have we, people would hurl abuse at us talking about like you, you know, they'd say names. Mm-hmm. And I could say, hey, I'm not a Catholic priest, but I recognize that those are people who are hurting. And so me defending myself wasn't what they needed to hear. So do you know what I would say? I'm sorry. Mm. In the exact same way, when someone was homeless and they would come to me and they would say, bless me, Father, I'm assuming that they thought that I was Catholic, but I didn't say to them, hey, I'm a Catholic priest. I can't pray for you. I will say a prayer for them. And so what we want to do is we want to sometimes isolate ourselves from the worst parts of Christianity and then laud the Christian heroes. This is all our story. We have to make sense of it. And so arguing about like how I can separate myself from the worst parts of Christianity to me, isn't a part of what's happening. We're all baptized into one body living and dead. And we have to give an account for the whole story, not just the parts that are glorious. And so I think that there's a certain defensiveness that I don't find super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Esau, let's talk a bit about anger associated with injustice. Right. And then, you know, the call that we have to be peacemakers. How can we as Christ followers, best understand what to do with that that anger as we also seek to make peace yes well what i tried to say is that the god in the in the book on the chapter on anger like the the, the bible records people who are deeply deeply upset you can look at the psalms where the psalms are calling for god to take vengeance upon their enemies and part of that to me is what i say is that when we pray god knows what we're feeling so just tell them what's happening hmm. say god right now 
I'm really, really angry about the things that are happening to me. But the important part is, is that rage is directed to God in prayer, not towards our enemies and vengeance. So even when even when the even when the Israelites prayed to God to take vengeance on their enemies in ways that we find like difficult to, to understand, it was a prayer directed towards God that trusted his sovereignty. So the important thing then is the way in which God answers that prayer. And the way that God answers that prayer is ultimately by sending his son. The son is the answer to the psalm of the vengeance. What does God do with his enemies? He loves them and he dies for them. And you have to keep both the ability to articulate the rage and to be able to say that after that rage, there has to be something else that makes it distinctly Christian than vengeance. So it's easy to say, yeah, the Bible talks about anger. We can be angry. The Bible includes anger. But the Bible also includes hope for something else. And so part of being a Christian is to say, well, how do I find my way towards that hope for something else? And what I say to people is, and this will sound overly Christian or overly pious, it's the cross. Hmm. It is only in so much as I understand that I've been deeply forgiven by God, that I can find the spiritual resources to forgive because as an African-American in this country, I have every single right to be angry. I do. And I, and, and what I can say is the cross is what allows me to forgive, but that forgiveness does not rule out justice. And the part of being a Christian and part of being a peacemaker is saying because of what the cross has done for us and because we care about God's coming kingdom, we have to point to what that kingdom is like. And it's a kingdom of peace and justice. And this is the thing. I have two children. I have four children. I have two kids who are old enough when they get into an argument. It's not simple enough to say every time they get into an argument, you're both equally guilty. Sometimes the boy hit the girl first and the girl hit the boy first and they started it. And I'll say to them, since you started it, you have to have these consequences. And since you were just defending yourself, you have these consequences. And so Christian peacemaking, then, if it's going to be Christian, it has to be rooted in truth. So you have to be able to say, well, before we can make peace between two sides, let's not simply make moral equivalences. Let's actually discern who is the more guilty party and, 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 and articulate that for them. That's what peacemaking involves. And sometimes we can talk about peacemaking and saying, well, the cross says we should forgive one another and let's forget about what happened and let's not ever have any kind of adjudication. Mm. But peacemaking, I think, if it's going to be biblical, can't be separated from truth telling. Yeah, that's good. So in, in our climate now, how how do we go about peacekeeping when it comes to things like a policing, for example? I think that we have to understand. I think I talked about this in the book. We have to understand that police do have very, very difficult jobs. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't imagine to see humanity at its sometimes most broken and vulnerable. And so part of it says that we have to understand the difficulty of the job. But the other part of it is we have to also understand the history of this country in which police were used to enforce things like segregation. This is where you see like the police and the dogs coming out during the Jim Crow era in the South. And so if you're going to put the context, the policing, the difficulty of policing into context, you also have to put the history of what police have been used to do to black people in this country in the context. And all of it has to be um, a part of the story. As a Christian, we are not anarchists. We do believe that there should be order in society. And we do believe that crime should be punished. We also believe in equal protection under the law. We also believe that even when someone is guilty, they remain an image bearer. Even when someone is guilty of a crime, they deserve dignity and respect. And precisely, if you're a Christian, it is precisely the people who are guilty whom we are most apt to protect because we want them alive long enough to have the transformation of life. And so a Christian theology of policing has something to say like, 
It is precisely the people whom society would throw away because of the things they may have done wrong, whom we want to value and say, I want to serve you so that I can keep these people alive. Which means, what does this mean? It means that as a pastor, we have to think that there's more to supporting our police officers than just putting pro-police things on our social media feeds. It's actually preaching and teaching and training from a theological perspective about what a person is and giving the law enforcement officers in our own communities the resources to see people even when they're at their most broken as human. And this is the last thing I'll say. I can say more about policing. And we can say this. We can actually value the profession of policing in practice and not only in name. And what I mean is when I say, when I, what I mean is this. When we think about our children, we think about we want our kids to be lawyers, doctors, pastors, missionaries. And then we said we honor the police. What would happen if there if Christians who really had a robust theology of what a person is, who were who dedicated to serve the poor, said rather than hoping that my kids go to a comfortable middle class life, that I want my children to become police officers. And I asked the question, well, how many people have children who are who are actual police officers in our churches? And so it's really easy. It's really easy to be pro-police until our families and our sons and our daughters have skin in the game. When that happens, then we're really, really concerned about the nature and the scope and the hope of policing. So I actually think that we need Christians who understand what a person is and how much a person is valued. We need more of those people to enter into professions like policing and firefighting and these other places. And we need to consistently train police officers theologically and spiritually give them places to process this because I can imagine that it's very easy to get to the place where you have a cynical um, view of humanity because you see people right. broken. All right. Um, one of the things that happens to me, like I do not read the comments on most of the things that I write now because if I just spend all of my time there, <laughs> I can say, well, nobody listens to anything that I say and they just kind of put me into some political box. So to save my soul, I have to pull back. So right. we got to find ways to continue to renew, to renew the spirit of the people who are charged with police in this country. Esau, that's excellent. Excellent commentary, brother. Um, so appreciate you being with us. I do want to give you um, an opportunity as we're closing down this conversation. You do have the ears of uh, pastors and ministry leaders, our colleagues here. And is there anything that you would like to leave with them as we wrap up this conversation? Yes, I, I said it earlier. I think that we're, I think that you can be very, um, you can become very afraid of the potential dangers of taking a certain course of action without recognizing the danger that is already here. Mm. And we're already in, like, we're in the midst of a, a really hectic time in our, in the society and the church because fear has kept us quiet for so long. And there is this idea that if I can just keep everything together until this blows over, then things might be okay. But what if we're actually in the midst of a seismic shift in the church where the future isn't with the people who feel like I must deconstruct the scriptures to find justice or the people who say I must avoid issues of justice because I want to maintain fidelity to the scriptures, but the future belongs in God's own providence, the people who can articulate from the center of the Christian tradition how the gospel in the, in the wider Christian tradition speaks to the issues that we're facing in our day. And that's what I wanted to point the way towards in this book, um, that the future is through more fidelity to God's word, not through less. 
So good, brother. Esau, I am so, so excited that we had the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you for making time in your schedule to speak with us. I want to encourage our listeners to check out Esau's book. It's entitled Reading While Black, African-American Biblical Interpretation as an Exercise in Hope. Absolutely fantastic. Um, speaks directly to so many things that we see going on right now all around us. And uh, as you said and, and articulated so well, it really um, points us to a, a strong biblical foundation and how do we look at the world around us from that biblical foundation. So thank you for your voice. Thank you for all of your work. We appreciate what you're doing and I look forward to to having a conversation with you hopefully again in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. God bless you, Esau. God bless you too. Goodbye. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. We hope you are finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we would appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcast so they can benefit as well. Thank you in advance. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send an email to podcasts at churchleaders.com or connect with me on Twitter. You can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the Faith Play app, available for both Apple and Android. So be sure to check out Faith Play. Until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.